morning. How y'all doing? That was terrible. There's like two good people over here. The rest of you are very sad. I don't know. Uh, can we try that again? How y'all doing? I guess, I, I guess actually as I say that, like I didn't give you a chance to be authentic. You could have been like, oh, I don't know. But yeah, good to have you here. My name is John Anderson, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Door Creek Church, and it is great to have you here with us. Thanks for being here. A uh, special welcome to anybody here in the room who's maybe here for the first time. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you. Um, hey, before I get into the sermon today, I just want to spend a moment sharing um, a couple thoughts with you, uh, just related to all that we've seen going on uh, in our national and our local politics and, and our current culture. And I realize even as I say that, for some of you in the room, that immediately like brings up this sense of anxiety, because uh, I think you're not supposed to talk about like uh, re- um, money or, or politics, right? So here we go. Um, now, I know enough of you in the room, and I also know that a church our size, that we have people who are part of the Door Creek community uh, who are all over the political spectrum. And I also know enough of you to know that many of you are very involved in politics. I just want to say that's fantastic. Um, but one of our prayers, uh, and I've talked to the leadership about this as well, so this is really our prayer for our church, is that no matter uh, your or my individual politics, um, that we as a church, that we would be unified in our devotion to Christ, first and foremost. And in that unity, that part of the way we'd express that devotion is that we would be passionately caring for the most vulnerable around us. We want that to be part of who we are as a church. Because what we see is throughout the entirety of Scripture, we see this pattern of God's character being revealed as one that cares passionately about the most vulnerable, the widow and the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee, and those who have no voice and no power in their given society. And we, as followers of Christ, we are to reflect that same love and grace and passion. And one of, our, one of our, the things that we aspire to, sorry, that we aspire to as a church is that we want to be a place that is a church for all people. And what that means to us is that, what that means is that as whoever you are, whatever background you come from, whatever cultural context you've grown up in, whatever socioeconomic group you're a part of, whatever age you are, whatever uh, education level you have, whatever background you come from, we hope that when you join us here, that you would feel incredibly welcomed and that you would experience the gospel both in word and deed. And more than that, that when people interact with us, those of us who call this church our home, out in the community, right, because the people are the church, not a building, that they would have that same sense of welcomeness and love and compassion. Now, if you're like me and uh, you're kind of, you're wrestling with what does it mean as a follower of Christ in our current context to do justice and to love mercy, if you're wrestling with what that looks like for you, I just want to invite you again, I know Mark talked about this last week, uh, invite you again to be part of and join us at the Kingdom Justice Summit. This is February 25th. It's on a Saturday. We have the Upper House, which is down on campus. We do have a shuttle leaving from here to go down there, so parking should not be your excuse. And our hope during that day is to wrestle together as a church and actually with other churches. As of yesterday, there was 33 different other churches that have people going to be there that day. That together we would wrestle and dream about what does it mean to do justice and to love mercy in our world today as followers of Christ across the political spectrum. 
And then also, I just want to take a moment, because this is such a pressing issue in the world around us right now, just to pray for us as a community. So would you just join me, please, as I pray for us as a church? Father God, thank you that you are the same God, that you are never changing, and that we see throughout Scripture that you have part of your character is a passion for the most vulnerable. And I just pray for us as a church, as a community of people, in the midst of all of our diversity, all our different worldviews, all of our, our different backgrounds, that we might be united in our devotion for you and our care for the most vulnerable. And I pray that that would be a mark of who we are as a community. And as we live that out, I pray that that would be a, a shining beacon of hope and grace and beauty in the midst of a world that seems like the people are just yelling at each other. Help this to be a place that is markedly different and that it would be to your glory and your fame. And I also finally, I pray, just help us to love one another well here in both word and deed. In your name, amen. All right, how y'all doing now? Oh, I'm like three goods. Okay, good, good. All right, let me just kind of change gears a little bit here by asking y'all a question. So here's the question. Uh, what is one, and I just want you to think about the answer to this in your own minds. What is one family tradition you have that is important to you as a family? Or maybe another way to ask that is, what is one tradition you have as a family that's kind of like core to who you are as a family? Can you think of anything? Okay. Uh, in my family, one of our core family traditions has become that every night at dinner time, we spend some time sharing highs and lows throughout the day. And it's pretty simple, right? So what we do is we go around the table, and we all take turns sharing one good thing and then maybe one not-so-good thing. Pretty straightforward, except for the fact that I have three little kids, and uh, ages six and under, and so these simple things sometimes aren't always that simple. For example, uh, my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Charlotte, here's her picture up here, uh, so cute. What I love about this picture, it really encapsulates her personality. So like really cute and kind of quirky and something is going on in that little head of hers that sometimes is a little dangerous. Um, so Charlotte, she gets her highs and lows backwards often. And so very frequently her high of the day will be that she was sick, <laughs> which isn't true. She wasn't sick, also not a high. So we're working on that. Or uh, my son, or my son, yeah, my son Ethan. Here we go. Like, man, I gotta get like my three kids' names right. Here's Ethan. He's six. He's our family extrovert, right? So if you meet him out in the lobby, within 30 seconds, he'll invite you to our dinner table. Uh, if we have any empty seats around the table, I'm I'm being honest about this. Pretty much every night, if there's a single empty seat, he's like, "Who's not here?" That's Ethan. So if you want to be invited to our house, don't talk to me. I'm a little grumpy. Talk to Ethan. You'll end up there. It's delicious. So Ethan, during his highs and lows, he occasionally takes more of a passive-aggressive approach. So when it comes to him, he'll take the opportunity to share that his low is maybe that his food is touching on the plate. <laughs> or, or this is one of my favorites because it hurts my feelings, um, is he'll share that his low is that dad made the food and he wishes mom had made it again. <laughs> like, thanks, buddy. Awesome. I've got a new low. Um, but regardless, this has actually been a fantastic practice for our family, because it, it's kind of built into the rhythm of our lives, this time to remember the good things in our lives and to be grateful. And also, it's created this rhythm of both sharing and listening to one another, and that's been really helpful for us. And for us as a family, this has become an Anderson family ritual that kind of recenters us every day after a long day apart. 
Now, for all of us in the room, whether you know it or not, you all have different rituals. We all do this. And rituals have the power both to ground us as well as, at times, to connect us with this deeper reality. And today, we're going to look at the origins of what is considered by many to be the central ritual to both the Jewish and the Christian story. And so, therefore, our story. So you all ready for this? I wish I could have that music, like, start that, that would be cool, but I don't. Um, so here we go. I think this is going to be, I'm excited about this. All right, so we are in a new series called The Storyline. So it's been up there for a little while now. This is going to be, we're going to be going through this the entire year with a few breaks in between different things. Um, and over the course of the year, we're going to be going through the entire story of the Bible. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already done this, to uh, join us in the scripture reading plans. It helps kind of put everything that's happening throughout the weeks in context as we're talking about it. Um, and if you have started this and you've kind of fallen off the wagon, because usually that's what happens after you start in January, you give it a couple weeks and you hit a book and you're like, oh, uh, it's a place of grace. So hop back on, all right? Don't worry about catching up and getting, you know, reading for three hours in the day. Just jump back into today's date and join us. And for those who haven't grabbed it, you can get this online or you can get it out at the welcome desk. Now, before we jump into the text today, I just want to catch us up to where we're at so far. So in the beginning, God created the entire universe, and it says that it was very good. But then, almost immediately, sin enters the world, and all of creation becomes corrupted. And then right after that, we see this glimmer of hope, because we see that God has a plan to redeem all of creation back to its original design. And he starts implementing this plan by calling this guy that nobody had heard of, a nobody, named Abraham. This is what we talked about last week. And God promises to bless Abraham and through him bless the entire world. And so this is where we left off last week. Now between last week and this week, a lot of time has taken place. In fact, over 400 years has passed since our story today. And during that 400 years, a lot has happened. Uh, for starters, um, God has used a man named Joseph to bring, remember, he's the guy with the robe, lots of colors. Um, God has used this guy, Joseph, to bring Abraham's descendants into the land of Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, they were a family, you know, a rather large family, but a family. Over the course of 400 years, they have grown into a very large population. And also, in the, this time, the Hebrew people have become enslaved by the Egyptians. And they're living under severe oppression. And just one example of this is found in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. The words will be up here on the screen. This is Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, just so you know, was both the king and also seen as the god of Egypt. And here's his command. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Okay, this is, uh, this is hard for us to even get our minds around what this would have been like, right? This is intense, severe oppression, and this is only part of what was happening. But in the midst of all this turmoil and all this hardship, God has not forgotten the people or his promises. And so he calls this guy named Moses, and he's going to be both his messenger, his prophet, and his leader. And God's plan is, you know this, is to set my people free, right? And so God in the process of doing that, is also going to show the entire world what kind of God he is, right? He could have just freed his people, but instead he goes through this entire process that reveals piece by piece part of the character and the majesty and the glory of God. And he explains 
part of his plan to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. You can follow along there. Uh, Exodus chapter 6, otherwise the words will be up on the screen. This is God talking to Moses about what he's going to do. Exodus 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Skip down to verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, if you look back at that text, I, one of the things that I want to point out, because this is so cool, is that God is not only promising to free the people, right? That's pretty clear. But also throughout this promise, he's promising to make them his people. This is a relational promise. It's so awesome. That is very different than most people would have seen a God in that given time. And then to summarize the next few chapters of Exodus uh, 7 through 12, God starts to enact this plan, right? And many of you know this part of the story because uh, this part of the story has been made famous by many movies as well as I think taught in every Sunday school class ever. Uh, and it's this really compelling, amazing story that if you've never read, please, please read through the first several chapters of Exodus. But to summarize, God... Uh, uses Moses, the prophet, prophet Moses, and subjects the Egyptians to nine different plagues, including a river of blood, uh, millions of flies, and a number of other things. But despite all that, Pharaoh is stubborn, and he will not let the people go. And so, God is about to bring about one final plague. And it's going to be the death of every firstborn male and animal throughout the entire country of Egypt. Now, if you're reading this story, it's a really great narrative, and it's just kind of like, it's, it's a good read, right? Not all the Bible is like that. Some parts of the Bible are like full of rules and laws and things like that, and you're like, what? I don't care what dimension that is. But this is one of those things that's just like a great read. But if you're reading the story of Exodus, you're reading it, it's a great story, and all of a sudden you come to chapter 12, and there's this strange interruption that takes place, because all of a sudden you run into two chapters in a row full of all these commands that seem strange to us and kind of out of place, and they seem like they interrupt the story. And what they are is a bunch of instructions related to the Passover meal as well as the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But as we're going to see, they're both actually extremely important to both the story as well as later the identity of the nation of Israel and to us today. So I want to camp out there for just a little bit together. So take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Exodus chapter 12. It's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 12, and we'll start in verse 1. All right, Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Now, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. 
You are, to you are to determine, there you go, the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then you are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. Okay, so let me just pause there for a second. Okay, so here's where I'm, I get to use my props. This is fun. Okay, so every family was supposed to take a lamb, and um, I just have to say this also. These are the least historically accurate props I could find. Uh, that's all I could find, so that's why we're using them. Okay, so every family was supposed to take a lamb, and uh, this is more like snack-sized lamb. I think these would they would have been a little bigger by one year. Um, and according to their family, so if you had a big family, you'd eat a whole lamb. If it was small, you would share it with your neighbors. So it's inherently a communal event. You take this lamb, and the entire community is doing this. And you have to remember that this kind of community lived in close proximity to one another, right? So this is like everybody and all your neighbors are doing this kind of together. And everybody was supposed to take their lamb, and roughly the same time at twilight, you would kill the lamb. You would slaughter the lamb. And you would take some of the blood... And you would put it, I don't know, like in a container, not like this, but like this. And then later in the text, what you see is that they were supposed to take something uh, called a hyssop branch. So it doesn't look quite like this, but again, couldn't find hyssop. So um, can I just confess to you guys, I cut this off a plant in the lobby. <laughs> Shh. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I didn't tell any of the services, though. That's good. Okay. So they take a hyssop branch, and this was like a, a, a bush, a kind of a small shrub. It was an herb, really. And what they were commanded to do was to dip it in the blood and then spread it up on the side and tops of the door frame. So it might have looked a little bit like this picture up here. Now, what I want you to try to get in your minds is the fact of what this would have been like. Because remember, everybody around each other is doing it at roughly the same time. And so this kind of happening would have been full of sights, and smells, and all kinds of things that they would have remembered, right? Because there would have been lambs dying in every household, and there would have been a lot of blood, and they would have been spreading it, and then everybody would have been celebrating this meal together. Now, why were they doing this? Let's continue on in verse 12. On the same night, oh, this is God talking. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then this is exactly what happened. Let's skip down to verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. Now remember, this is exactly what God said he was going to do in chapter 6. Now, it's, it's nearly impossible for us to even imagine what this would have been like, right? Through, throughout the entire country, there's not a single household 
that doesn't either have a dead person or a dead lamb. Can you imagine what this would have been like? And you also have to remember the Hebrew people, they have been slaves now for a couple hundred years and their oppression is severe and this oppression has come to an abrupt end in the middle of the night. And now, now they are free. Oh, what that would have felt like. This Exodus story, the story we see here, this is a story of God's grace. Because notice, if you look back through the story, nowhere in here does it say that the Israelites were somehow better than the Egyptians, right? It wasn't like they were a good group of people and the Egyptians were a bad group of people, so Jesus or God punished bad and helped good, right? No, 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 no. The Hebrew people were saved because they had blood of a lamb on their doorframe. This is grace. This is a gift given to them free that they didn't earn. And not only that, but that same night, they were redeemed into relationship with the Almighty God. Now, this is an event that I guarantee no one living at the time would have forgotten for the rest of their lives. And the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread that we read about in part in chapter 12 and continues on into chapter 13, that was all designed to help future generations to remember, to remember what took place. And this was a festival that was to be seven days long, and it was so significant to them as a people that they were actually supposed to reorient their entire calendar around it. So it became, essentially for us, as, as if we took our, our 4th of July and said, man, this is so important to our country that we're going to make it our New Year's Day. That's what, what took place here. And throughout this festival, there's celebrating, there's telling stories, there's all kinds of different rituals that they go through, all of which were designed to help them remember as a people that they had once been slaves, that they had been set free by God's grace. And not only that, but that they had been redeemed to be in relationship with the Creator God. And this became core to part of the national identity of the Jewish people. And then for the next 1,500 years, as we can best tell from historians, for the next 1,500 years, the Jewish people faithfully celebrated the Passover. And then along came a rabbi who changed everything. And after just a couple years of, of traveling around the country and telling people about this kingdom of God that had come, this rabbi, Jesus, was sitting down with some of his closest friends and followers about to celebrate the Passover meal in the same way that it had been done for generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. And at this point in history, Every Jewish child would have grown up having practiced uh, the same rituals and heard the same stories about how God has set his people free. And part of that tradition was that as they would eat the meal, uh, one person, uh, usually the senior male, would kind of lead the rest of the room through the meal and through the different rituals and kind of explaining what it all meant. And this is actually exactly what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. And so during the meal, as had been done countless times before, Jesus picked up the bread, and what he should have said was, this bread is the bread of affliction. And when we eat it, we remember our ancestors and how they suffered so that we might be free. But he changed the script. He picked up the bread, and he said, this is my body. Now, this would have gotten people's attention in the room, right? Because this is a ritual, and they've done this every year of their lives, they would have been like, wait, what? What? That's not, that's not the line, Jesus. What are you saying? And, and not only that, but then just a few moments later, Jesus took the cup of wine. And this was a cup 
that would have been shared four different times throughout the meal. And each time, it was in slightly different ways to remember God freeing his people and making them his own. Once again, Jesus changes the script. He takes the cup and he said, This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, remember me. Now again, the disciples would have been like, Whoa, whoa, what, Jesus? You are off script, buddy. That is not what we say here. This would have been confusing for them. But it also would have taken on significant new meaning just a few hours later when Jesus was arrested, tried, and then falsely convicted to death on the cross. Now there's three uh, essential elements of every Passover meal. There was the bread, there's the wine, and then there's the, the lamb. But what's missing is any reference to a lamb in any of the Gospels when describing the Passover supper. And that's because all the authors, all the writers, they saw that Jesus was the one that fulfilled the role of the lamb. It's his body that was broken and his blood that was shed so that through his sacrifice, God was about to once again let his people free and once again invite them into relationship with him. But this time, that freedom was from the slavery of sin. And this time, that invitation was to all of humanity. And that is good news. And later, as he hung upon the cross, beaten, bloody, and suffering, there's two other images uh, that are recorded that point us back to the Passover. In John 19, 28 through 30, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he asks for a drink. And he's given this soaked sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant. Now, you remember this. This is the same plant that in Exodus, the Israelites were commanded to use to dip into the blood and spread on the doorframe. And so almost certainly, as it was being held up to the face of Jesus, this hyssop branch was covered with blood from his body. And this would have created a vivid visual for any Jew living at the time. And then later, in Matthew... 27, it's recorded that Jesus died at dusk. Now, it's easy for us to miss this, maybe, but this is the exact time that the Israelites were commanded to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And so the authors make it clear that Jesus was and is our Passover lamb. And because of his death on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied so that we might be saved. And this, my friends, this is what we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion here. This is a chance for us to remember. And in the same way that the Passover was central to the nation of Israel's identity, communion is central to our identity as a community of Christ followers. And here's what's so cool about this. It's not only central to our community here at Door Creek. This is central to every community of Christ followers throughout time and around the world. So this is just one of those beautiful things that brings us together as a universal church. And it's a time for us to remember the God that we serve and what he has done for his people. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to have a chance to take communion together. And again, this is a chance for us to remember our story. We remember that we in this room were slaves to sin. But because of the cross, we have been set free. We remember that we have been brought into the family of God. 
that in this room, you and I, that we are sons and daughters of the king. That is awesome. And we remember that we are family. And for anybody here uh, in the room who maybe um, you've not yet placed your faith in Christ, maybe you don't even know why you're here. Like you, you were invited by a friend, you showed up, and you're still not sure why you came today. First of all, I just want to say welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And for you, the Lord's Supper stands as an invitation. It's an invitation to experience freedom from the power of sin and to be welcomed into the family of God as a son or daughter. And this is an invitation of grace, right? Sometimes we don't do a great job within, of, within our Christian culture of expressing the truth of this, but you don't have to get your act together. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to get it right. You don't have to do enough good things, and then you can respond to this invitation. No, no, no. This is an invitation of grace, which means nothing you can do can get you cleaned up enough. Come as you are. God is waiting to welcome you into his family. And for those of us here who have already placed our faith in Christ, and we're just trying to follow him and figure out what that means day to day, I just have two points of encouragement for you. The first is this, is that as a group of people, as we take time to remember the God that freed his people, that brought them out of Egypt and into relationship with him, and then later died on the cross for us, it ought to lead us into humble worship. Humble because there is nothing we can do or could have done or will ever do to earn our deliverance, right? We were saved by grace and grace alone, and that's hard for us. Like, we, we live in a culture that says, like, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, do a good enough job and earn that. No, no, no. The story here is that it's of grace, and there is nothing you could have done. You were enslaved by the power of sin and by no power of your own, but by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, you were given new life. So that humbles us. And it also leads us into worship. Because we serve a God that sets nations free. We serve a God that moves towards the powerless and the forgotten and the broken. A God that is more powerful than any ruler or nation or anything in all of creation. And he has used his power and his majesty and his might to sacrifice himself for us. And when we encounter that glory and that power, man, the only appropriate response for us is to drop to our knees and say, God, you are worthy of all worship and honor and glory. And the second appropriate response for us, as we remember this God who has set us free, is that it leads us more and more in the lives of sacrificial service to others. Now, I think we confuse this sometimes. And I say this having worked... Uh, in vocational ministry for a long time now. Sometimes we create this weird divide between those who work within vocational ministry and everybody else who's like trying to follow Jesus. But here's the truth, is this, a life of sacrificial service is not a unique calling just for a special few, right? This is a universal calling to all followers of Jesus. And here's why. Because we walk in the footsteps of the one who gave of his very life for others. And we, all of us, are to mirror that love and that grace to those around us and to care for those who bear the image of God. Which I'll tell you this, is everybody, even if you don't like them. And this part's kind of counterintuitive to us because I think it flies in the face of pretty much everything we hear. But the truth we see in Scripture is that for us to gain the life we long for, 
We have to lose it in service to others. Here's what Jesus uh, says in Matthew 10, 39. Jesus says this. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will, will find it. So as we try and live out our faith moment by moment throughout the week, it is good for us to remember that we serve a God that sets the oppressed free. And we have the opportunity, and I would say actually the obligation, to care for the oppressed around us, the forgotten and the vulnerable. Like I said before, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee, the poor, and those who have no voice. And we share a message that offers grace and love and hope. Because that's what our Lord and Savior has done for us. And so may we be a people that remember who we were and also remember who we now are because of God's love and grace. And in that remembering, may that deeply shape how we both worship as well as how we live our lives day to day. So let me pray for us. Father God, um, I just I want to start by just saying uh, I'm both in awe and amazed that you hear our prayers and that as you hear our prayers, you're the same God that drew your people out of Egypt and set them free and made them your own. And I praise you that you continue to tell that same story of freeing people from slavery and drawing them into relationship with you. And I pray for those of us in this room who have found that freedom in you that we would not forget, that we would be grateful, that we would spend lives of humble worship and that we would love deeply and sacrificially those around us, especially those who are vulnerable. And then I also pray for anybody here or any of our friends who may be not even in the room have not placed their faith in you, I just pray, God, that they might know the beauty and the freedom that can be found in you and you alone, and that they might experience the joy of being welcomed into your family and becoming your sons or daughters. So pray for us as a community. Help us to reflect your love and